This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Is it like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches? And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Is it like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven? He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be... Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to cure you, kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, In this passage, uh, it's a hard passage, uh, because one of the questions that is asked of Jesus is essentially how many will be saved, right? Will only a few be saved? 
But when you look at it in its context, there's actually several hard questions that are really being asked. When Jesus talks about the mustard seed, he's talking about where are you, God? Is this kingdom of God that you proclaimed of, is it growing? God, are you working? The other question is, why are people not being saved? Right? Is it only a few? And later on, if he talks about judgment, you wonder, does Jesus care? Does he care about those who end up rejecting him? And uh, so we've got a lot of work to do, but it's encouraging for us to know that even through these hard passages, the reason Luke writes from the very beginning, his goal, see he was not one of the disciples of Jesus, the initial disciples of Jesus. He is a physician, He travels around with Apostle Paul for a bit. And what he decides to do, because he's starting starting to talk to so many eyewitnesses of Jesus, is his goal in in, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is to write an orderly account so that you would have certainty about what you believe. So if you think about what we're talking about today, the idea of judgment, and I've talked about it last week as well, the Bible talks a lot about it, and so we have to talk a lot about it. But what you will see is that even through such challenging passages like this, that all the more you could have certainty about what you believe, you could have clarity about what you believe. And so as I mentioned, just in the passage before, Jesus heals a woman who's been you know, ridden with this you know, disability for 18 years. Right? Some of us have just turned 18. It's It's a short lifetime, and it's in that, as Jesus heals, everyone again celebrates. They rejoice, and what Jesus does is he takes a moment to recognize the the emotional high everybody's going through, and he he basically goes, you know, 10,000 feet high to help them understand, okay, this moment that you experience, yes, it's the breaking in of the kingdom of God, But what you also need to know is what the kingdom of God is truly like. Because if you don't know what the kingdom of God is truly like, you will ask questions like, is God working? Right, when's the last time we've asked that question? Is God working in my life? What's happening? And we ask these questions all the time because there's an aspect where we just simply think God is the miraculous worker and that's it. But the nature of the kingdom Is God still working? In verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? uh, And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and, and sowed in his garden and grew it and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. As the people are on this emotional high, thinking this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like, there's going to be healing upon healing, he takes a step back to help them realize, yes, that is a part of the kingdom. Forgiveness is a part of the kingdom. Healing and restoration is a part of the kingdom. But he's preparing them, is he not, for his death? He's preparing them for when he leaves because it's going to look very different, for the church will be persecuted. And so he says, what's the kingdom of God like? Let me think, what should I compare it to? 
So he thinks of the smallest thing you can think of at that time, a mustard seed. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, but it'll grow very large, so large that birds will come and nest, right? And the idea is, in those moments of high, to have also a reality check that there was going to be challenging, quieter times in your faith. And I think for most of us, we can recall those spiritual highs, right? We can recall those moments when God broke in through your life. Maybe you, were, you had an addiction of some sort, and all of a sudden you feel like you're free, and you are. Maybe it's a moment when you, you put your faith in Christ. You wrestled and wrestled, and somehow, way, maybe a pastor spoke, you opened up the Bible, and it made sense. You're thinking, oh, God is working. And then there's other times you just open up the Bible and you, and you pray and you read and you feel like, where is, where is God? Is he, is he speaking? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, unsuspecting. You don't know that it's even planted. Uh, I was a part of a church uh, for seven years, a very well-known church in Korean American circles. Uh, if you... Uh, or if you were a Korean American, chances are you, you knew of this church, you knew even knew, knew of this pastor. Uh, this church was, was well known for the type of Christians that it would develop, uh, those who end up going into full-time ministry like myself. Uh, they're, you know, they're Friday night gatherings, right? Think about college campus. A Friday night gathering would have a thousand plus students passionately worshiping. After the Friday night gathering, after hearing like an hour sermon, uh, you know, people would hang out in small groups and laugh and amazing things would happen in this church. They would have these kind of prayer meetings where you would really, you know, stretch yourself and, 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 and push yourself to pray. And so when people would come and visit this church, they would say, this is an amazing church. God is doing amazing things here. Well, something's happened uh, to this church in the past uh, you know, a year, but specifically the past you know, couple of months, where the pastor, one of the main pastors there, was found to have a scandal. From it, uh, through different channels, an Instagram page was birthed, uh, where there's account after account of this abusive culture that was this church. And so for me and my friends who read you know, some of these posts, it's utterly heartbreaking. Uh, some of you have been a part of a church where it's had these amazing moments where God was working and then these other moments where you wonder, does God even exist here in this church? This past week, I, I talked to somebody, been in Korea for seven years or so, uh, been through about five churches in those seven years because the church either uh, split or imploded. Uh, some of you have coworkers, right? You're worried about whether you share that you're a Christian or not. Why? Because the reputation of the church has been dragged through the mud by such scandals, by such pastors. And it's in moments like that you recognize the truth of this statement, the importance of this statement. There will be these moments where you just see God work. Everyone is rejoicing. Everybody is worshiping. And then these other moments where you just look around and you wonder, where, 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 is, where is God? 
And he continues on with, the, with this idea that it's not just like this mustard seed, because this mustard seed, it's the smallest seed, but it grows up to be about 12 feet high, about three meters. It's this idea, and it's, it's in a garden. And so it's this gigantic tree that forms. And then in verse 20, he says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour is about 60 pounds or 27 kilograms of flour. It's a lot of flour. So much flour that you can feed probably about 100 people with this amount of flour. It's a ridiculous amount. You don't have this amount just to bake for your family. What's Jesus saying? He's saying even with this ridiculous amount of flour, just a little leaven, you could consider it yeast. You can't see it. You put it in, you hide it in there. You continue to work it throughout all the dough. And when you bake it, what happens? It rises. The idea is you can't see it, even this large amount of dough. And what is Jesus' point? That the kingdom of God will become massive but the kingdom of God, it will permeate, right? Just like the, the dough, the 67 pounds of dough, it will permeate through all of it. The kingdom of God will permeate all the nations. That's what Jesus' point is. God's work will often seem insignificant in your life, will go unnoticed, but in the end, it will be all pervasive and massive in size. We know uh, this reality when we walk down the street and we see the root of a tree break through cement. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he makes this, you know, makes this point. You know, what's stronger, a mustard seed or a slab of cement? And for all of us, we would say the cement because you could crush that small seed. But what happens when you plant that seed underneath the cement and you wait years. We've all seen it. If you uh, have a home where you had a lawn in the front, and chances are you had a tree planted years back, and then one day you start to realize that the root of the tree is growing to be so strong that what happens to that slab of cement? It cracks. And that's Jesus' idea. The church, the kingdom of God, the work, in God, the work of God in your own heart and life, it's going to seem small. You're going to wonder, is God working in my heart? And so it's in this moment when these people are in this, you know, jubilant state. They see Jesus' work. They're rejoicing. And he takes a step back and says, I want you to know also what the kingdom of God is like. It starts off seemingly insignificant. It goes unnoticed. You may feel like that in your workplace. Does my, do my prayers even matter? Do the conversations that I'm trying to make, does it even matter? And Jesus would say, the kingdom of God, it's like that mustard seed. It's like the leaven. You don't see it, but as you remain faithful, but what's the promise? God is working, though you cannot see this happens to us in the micro level, right? Uh, we went through James, 
in the beginning of it, it says, trials of various kinds produces steadfastness, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It says various kinds of trials, right? Not just a trial, but you go through so many different hardships as a Christian, and the idea is, why do I go through this? God, what are you doing? And it's going to be in that moment, in that hardship, God is working. You see, easy times make soft Christians, right? It is the hard time. It's the hardship, the hardship that you are in right now. When you wonder, God, are you working? What you hear is God is saying it's in the hardship that he is working. It's true on a macro level, is it not? We look throughout this room. Right? We can take a survey of the different countries that we represent. Right? This, this dysfunctional group of 12 disciples, right? they seem to get it all wrong over and over and over. And Jesus, as he dies, as he resurrects, as he goes to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, these people are changed. But you can't tell. They look the same. But it's these 12, as they share their faith, what has happened. Through over 2,000 years, that gospel message somehow made it to Korea, somehow made it to the U.S., somehow made it to you know, South America, to Africa. And so yesterday, I just took a few minutes to think about the different people in our church and the countries that it represents because it's the idea of in those moments of doubt, God, are you working? You can literally look in the mirror, unless you're Jewish. But apart from that, you can look in the mirror and recognize this is true. 2,000 years, God has used humble people, broken people, to take this message, and it's permeated this world. And so I think about America, Canada, Korea. That's, the, that's like the really low-hanging fruit, okay? And then there's what? Argentina, Mexico, Guatemala, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Thailand, China, Hong Kong, Austria, Germany, France, UK, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Honduras, so many more, and if I skipped you, I apologize, you are a valued member of this church. But that's the idea. God's word, the nature of his kingdom, it's true in which how he described it, and so it works in this way. And so in those moments, there's gonna be times when you just see God working, it's so clear, and then other times you'll wonder, God, are you working? And so that's what he's speaking to, this moment of, of ministry high, Reminding you of the nature of this kingdom, it's, it's humble. It works in quiet ways. So if God is working, then you would think, well, everyone will become Christian, won't they? And so you have friends that you've been praying for. You have family members that you've been praying for, sharing your faith with. But it seems like it's so hard. And so what Jesus also then does is show us specifically in detail why some people are not saved. And this is, I'm going to preface it, it is not easy. 
But what you will find is amazing grace even in these passages. In verse 22, it's not a setting has changed. Why are some people not saved? He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and, and journeying towards Jerusalem. And that's important to note. As he begins the season of ministry, he is going towards Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? It's in Jerusalem that he gives up his life. Verse 23, it's in this idea of as he's teaching, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And I think it's an interesting question. Because why is it, God, Jesus, will those who are saved, will it be few in number? Why isn't the question, Lord, will those who are saved, will it be many? And he's trying to make this point. He wonders how many will be saved. It was actually a discussion, uh, a question asked to many rabbis of that day. And what we find with Jesus is he has no desire to have a theological debate with someone who does not understand what's at stake. He has no desire. He does not answer this question. Instead, he uses this as an opportunity to address something much more urgent. He addresses their heart. He said to them in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive, it's the word to to engage in in some sort of athletic competition. The idea is a focus. Listen to me. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He doesn't just say, for many will seek to enter and won't be able. He says, for many, and then what? For many, I tell you. This is the answer that he wants this man to hear. It becomes a personal message. It's not theoretical, it's not this abstract thought, how many will be saved? Jesus says, I tell you, many will strive to enter, but I tell you, many will not be able to enter. Jesus' heart, what you see here, is that when he talks about what we talk about in terms of those who are not saved, it's personal. It's not abstract. It's not simply ideas. It's not simply heaven and hell and this random number. For him, all of this is personal. Not only is it personal, it's urgent. He tells them, make a decision, strive to enter the door, for the door is closing. And so he's talking about it in a personal nature. He's talking about it in a, with a sense of urgency. And he's frustrated because they don't understand. It's like the idea of someone being tied to train tracks. And a train is coming at 50 kilometers an hour. And the train is about 100 meters away. And this man is looking at this person and saying, well, if the train is about, you know, 50, about 100 meters away, going at, you know, 50 kilometers an hour, well, how much time do I have? That's the ridiculousness of what Jesus sees. 
He's saying, you have to decide. This is an urgent matter. And his response is, I wonder how many will be saved. Do you see? The way that Jesus sees it is these are not simply theological discussions to have with the unbelieving or the unchurched world. It's all personal. This is not a game. Think about it in another sense. If you're swimming and you start to drown, at what point do you call out for help? Is it when you've tried and you tried and you tried and then you, you wait for that last ounce of energy and breath and then you say, okay, finally, at this time, now I will call for help? No. When you're drowning, the moment you call for help is the moment you lose control. It's the moment when you recognize, I need help. You don't calculate, well, okay, you know, right now, it seems like I have about a, maybe a minute. So let me try for about 59 seconds longer, and then I'll call out for help. Because the idea for Jesus is that this is not an abstract thought. That he literally came down to save. And he does so in such a way that it's personal. And so he tells him, I tell you, strive. It's not him, Jesus telling him, do your best. It's saying, listen to my words. There's a sense of urgency. You see, the lack of urgency reveals a person has not recognized their need for saving, their need for salvation. Isn't that why we're all here? If you have put your faith, it's not because you calculated, well, you know, I'm 16 years old. Maybe I'll die when I'm 17, and so I'm going to put my faith in him now. No, you have tried to figure out life. You've tried to save yourself, and you failed, and you failed, and you failed. So whether you're 12 years old and you put your faith in Christ, or whether you're 60 years old and you put your faith in Christ, the idea was you've tried to save yourself. You've realized you've been drowning this whole time, and so it was in that moment you needed to. It was life and death. It was hope. And it was in that you recognize, I need Jesus. It's challenging, isn't it? Even as we continue on in verse 25, right? The, re the response that Jesus gives, right? Uh, when once the master of the house was risen and shut the door and began to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Listen to these words. The reason for why Jesus will not open that door. I do not know where you come from. Isn't that interesting? Later on, he talks about the evil work that they do. In verse 27, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The workers of evil is the consequence of not being saved. It's we need saving, we struggle, we are foolish, we are selfish, we live for ourselves, we are workers of evil, and so the idea is we need saving. But the reason that they are rejected is not because of the work that they do, it's because they have rejected Jesus. I do not know where you come from. I do not know you. That's a bold, bold statement. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to each and every single one of you. It is you that have 
rejected me. Because they have rejected his offer for salvation. You see, Christianity, it's theologically sound. It'll help you see the world. The more I, I believe you understand scripture, I think it changes how you think. Romans 12 talks about it renews your mind. So for some of you who maybe struggle with some sort of you know, idea of identity and sense, you know, maybe the idea is, okay, maybe if I become a Christian, it'll change my way of thinking, and that's what Jesus is saving me from. The idea is Jesus is not saving you in terms of ideology, in terms of he's, he's giving you positive thinking habits. What Jesus is doing, he's saving you personally. He's saving you and your heart. You see, it's not just simply ideas that you're studying. Every time you open up the word, you're connecting to the Lord and he's doing a work in your heart and in your mind. And so when you reject Jesus, you don't reject an ideology or a system of thought or a theology. You're rejecting, when you reject Christianity, you're rejecting who? Jesus, the one who has come. It's a bold, bold claim that all of us have to continue to wrestle with in terms of what that means. And so we see this all the more in verse 34 as he explains about his heart for those who have rejected, he says, how often would I have gathered your, uh, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But what? You were not willing. Ideas he's doing. This work of gathering, calling, inviting, come, listen, strive to enter into the door. And for these people, they are just unwilling. They have a resolve, a stubbornness to not want to follow. Daryl Bach says it this way in one commentary. Only one thing stopped God from exercising such care to these people. The people did not wish for him to do so. That's it. That's the reason that these people end up not being saved. God's heart is to gather, to gather like a mother Right? That's the image. It's like, it's like the, the heart of a mother. John 6, 37 is even more clear. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the heart of God. Why, do, why are some people not saved? It's because God has offered the invitation and they have rejected that offer. And so in verse 28, the hardest maybe portion of all of scripture in this passage in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. The idea of weeping, the idea of gnashing your teeth, grinding your teeth, it's deep, deep anguish. I don't know how long some of you have been a believer even as I read this, study this this week, even as I speak it now, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to understand this. Because my humanity says, no, I don't like this. And I know many of you feel the same way when you hear about the church talking about judgment, about heaven and about hell. 
remember about my second year uh, planting Gospel City. You know, pre-COVID, we do uh, communion weekly. I believe it's a means of grace. I believe it's really uh, a, a way to strengthen the church. And so a church member comes up to me, you know, after uh, doing communion, and he just asks, hey, could we stop doing communion? So I ask him, you know, what's, what's, what's the reason? He says, well, you know, when people take communion, you always acknowledge that it's for those who, who do believe. It's, it's, a, it's a meal for the faith family. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, how about those who don't believe? They'll feel like they're outsiders. I'm like, yeah. And, and they said, well, let's stop doing that so they don't feel like outsiders. And then what I responded, how I responded was, well, I don't think it's a service to them if we hide some truths of Scripture from, to make them feel better. I think what we should do is, is speak the, the, you know, what we know of Scripture, what Jesus has told us, what the Bible says, but love them and be gracious to them and walk hand in hand with them and, and share with them our struggles and our, our doubts. I think that's the best way to be able to serve them. And this may be something that you feel Right? For me, like this week and last week, I talk about judgment, and I don't really find that much joy in it, but I find it necessary because it's helpful for us to understand that Jesus really did save us from something. I was listening to a sermon uh, by a pastor, by a British pastor named uh, Dick Lucas, and, he, and in the sermon, he talks about this article that he found, or this essay that, that he found, about the church, uh, you know, in England. And he says about, about the 1870s is when the church started to see deep uh, decline within, uh, within the church, you know, in England. And it's this non-Christian who, who decided to do this research. He's a historian. And as he does the research, he points out that the reason the church declined in Europe, or in specifically, in, you know, in the U.K., it wasn't because of Darwinism, which was growing in popularity and in thought. It wasn't because of, you know, biblical criticism, the idea of can you really trust the Bible, which, were, which, which the church was being attacked with. He recognized, the, the, the author of the essay recognized, the reason the church declined so quickly was because the church stopped talking about heaven and hell. And he stopped talking about judgment. Because they wanted to not offend people, and they wanted to bring everybody in. But it was by doing that, people started to wonder, why did Jesus even come? And so in this, we recognize Jesus' heart. That he is like that mother who brings them in. And so the last question is, does Jesus care? Does he care for those who reject him? Because we all know, for those of us who have put our faith in him, yes, we are considered his brothers and sisters, that he's our elder brother, that God is our heavenly father. We know that we are in this family. We know that by his life, death, resurrection, he gives us an identity. And so the question is, how does Jesus feel about those who have rejected him? Is God the kind of God, the kind of God where after these people reject him, he's like, they're lost? And moves on. Verse 29, right? He finishes up this passage, and the people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, recline at the table in the kingdom. That it's reminding them again of what God will do. But then in verse 34, 
we see the passage I just read. And let me read it again. It's a lament. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. We start to see immediately, he doesn't just simply move on. He laments, he's grieving. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. But that word, those words in verse 35, it's reminiscent of the Old Testament. Your house is forsaken. Simply, specifically talking about the Jewish people who have rejected Christ. And in Jeremiah, this is how God, uh, Yahweh, talks about his people. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemy. It's his house. He gives it up. But how does he talk about these people? The beloved of my soul. God loves his people, those who put their faith in him, but also those who do not. Later on, as he heads towards Jerusalem in in Luke 19.41, he says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it because he knows the decisions that they have made and they have rejected him. So he weeps. He doesn't move on. He doesn't say, well, that's your choice. He weeps. His heart breaks for it's the heart of a parent. For these people are unwilling and that's what the judgment of God is often referred to in Romans 1.24 as it talks about the judgment of God to these people who have uh, re- rebelled and rejected against God. It says, therefore God gave them up in their lusts. And you see that three times. For, uh, for this reason God gave them up to uh, dishonorable passions. Right? Uh, and in and, and verse 20, and since it did, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The whole idea of those who, do, who are not saved is that they have rejected the invitation of God, and so God gives them over to their desires. And so the weeping and gnashing of teeth is that they recognize that they have forsaken God but they also recognize they're left to themselves. It's a world without God, a world without hope. And it's when that reality starts to settle in, there's a weeping, a gnashing of teeth. And, as, and throughout the Old Testament, as it talks about God acting out in judgment, I want you to see some of these verses. And I think it'll be very helpful as you understand judgment and how God feels about those who forsake him. In Lamentations 3, 31, it says, the Lord will not cast off forever. The idea of in this moment of exile, God has left them. It says, it will not be forever, it will not be forever, but though the cause of grief, he, he will have compassion, for what? According to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then these words, for he does not afflict from his heart. So he's doing the afflicting, but he doesn't do it from his heart or grieve the children of men. Uh, Isaiah 28 
talks about it, God's judgment in this way. For the Lord will rise up to do his deed, the deed of judgment, strange. That's how it's described. Strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. The idea is God will judge, and there is a sense of God being judged, and there is a satisfaction for the evil that will be accounted for, for that's justice. But the way it talks about God's heart, if he doesn't do it from his heart, Jeremiah 32 shows about what he does with his heart. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Thomas Goodwin, a pastor uh, who lived before us, says it this way, when he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There is always something in his heart against it. His act of judgment is always for something else that's better and good. So this is something that he does because he is just, but also because he's for something else, for something that is good. And so in summarizing these verses, Thomas Goodwin says it this way. When he, when he speaks of punishing, he says he does, he does not from his heart afflict or grieve the children of men. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work or strange act. And when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and his whole soul. Whether you're a believer or not, when you start to understand this, this is beautiful because you understand God's heart, one for justice, but ultimately for what? Redemption, for love. And we see it as we finish off in this passage. How does this whole passage begin? In verse 31, at the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And then in verse 32, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow on the third day. I finish my course. Nevertheless, I, will, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. What's Jesus saying? These are uh, Hebrew idioms. He's basically saying, yes, he will try to kill me. I'm going to continue to move on. I'm going to go towards where? Jerusalem. He's going to head towards Jerusalem. He's going to continue to heal. He's going to continue to share the message of the gospel. He's going to share about what he's going to do. And the whole idea is, as he understands, people will reject him. It does not faze him, for he, was, he is determined to finish this mission, to save those whom the Father has given to him. That's, the God's, that's God's heart. He wants to save those who he knows will reject him, he weeps over. All of that so he can do this one thing with his whole heart, save those who choose to believe. So when you hear about the kingdom of God being like this mustard seed, and you wonder, how in the world is this gospel going to continue to go? For it's so offensive in today's culture. You recognize once you dig deep enough, you recognize the truth and the beauty of who this God is. See, for God, this world is not good enough. The ultimate goal of heaven 
and hell. It exists so that heaven can exist. The ultimate goal is heaven. And hell exists so that heaven can exist. You see, it's those who have rejected heaven. For what does he want? He wants heaven. He wants the place where those who have given his life, given uh, their faith to him, that they now are renewed. And so it's going to be heaven. It's going to be the place where there is no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more injustice. Why? They've given their life and faith to him. And now it's a people where there will be eternal hope, living hope, true justice. And so even when you understand judgment, it's always for heaven. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.